is um, a special day, but we are going to uh, go through Mark chapter 7 and verse uh, 1 through 23, talking about toxic religion, and you're going to see why here in just a moment. But one of the things that I love about walking through the gospel of Mark is it's moving so quickly. It's like a movie in a way. You're going from one scene uh, to another, and something that we find that is always the case is although there's a lot of detail, there's always a point. Mark always is giving us a point. There's details, but there's a point. And we're trying to glean the point out of the passage. That's at least what I'm tasked with and what I try to do. Last week, we looked at a very famous passage. This is where Jesus sent the disciples in a boat across the Sea of Galilee. And he didn't go with them. He went off to pray. And the disciples enter into the sea, and and they're rowing, rowing, rowing. And it says that a storm, um, this was a headwind that pushed the boat back. It's like they kept rowing and the boat kept getting pushed back. And after seven hours of rowing all night, they're still only two and a half miles away from where they started. I mean, this could have been incredibly discouraging and all of their strength was depleted. And at that moment, Jesus walks out on the water. They thought he was a ghost. And now they're having an encounter with Jesus in the middle of a storm. And Jesus was absolutely saying this, I am the son of the living God. I want you to know something, guys, because clearly their hearts were still hardened and they weren't getting the point that Jesus was not merely the Messiah, but he was God the son. And they were overwhelmed by this reality. I believe they're starting to understand Jesus's revelation to them. And Jesus gets in the boat, the storm subsides, and they end up mooring into shore of a little area called Gennesaret, which is southwest of of Capernaum, which is their home base. And that's probably where they were headed, but the wind pushed them down probably is what happened. When they get out of the boat into this area, they start traveling throughout Galilee again. And the Bible says they're healing, they're bringing deliverance, they're preaching the kingdom And something interesting that Mark notes right before the passage that we're about to read now is is that people were bringing all of their friends and family members on pallets. They were running to Jesus like all over the region. And so the word was spreading. Jesus, the miracle worker, was here. And that's where the text leaves us off. And we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 7 and verse 1. It's a lot of uh, Bible here today, which is not abnormal for us, but we're going to have to breathe a few times while we read this text. So bear with me. Mark chapter 7 and verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Jesus when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Everybody say mother. It's Mother's Day. Honor your father. See, there's a text in there for you ladies. All right. 
Didn't see that last night. (laughs) Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of your father or mother is to be put to death. Just keep rolling. Just keep going there. (laughs) Wow. Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure. This just in from our sponsor. Uh, But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have uh, that would help you is Corbin. That is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and it's eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot here to unpack, but we're zeroing in on this issue of religion. And the word religion is used to describe a lot of things in our world today. Usually in Christian circles, the word religion can be used with a negative connotation. It typically is used that way. You may hear someone say something like this, I am committed to relationship with Jesus and not religion. Has anybody heard that statement before? It may or may not be the tagline of Northwest Church since 1980. Our founding pastor here at the church, we're celebrating 43 years in in, uh, the end of July as a a church, and um, that, that was something that was actually really popular to say back in the 80s, and we kept it as our tagline for a very long time. People would say, I'm not, I'm not religious. I'm, I, I believe in a relationship with Jesus. That, that was more, people are trying to distinguish between toxic religion or religious tendencies. But we have to acknowledge the word religion itself is not a bad word. In fact, in the book of James, chapter one, at the end of the chapter, James says there is something called pure and undefiled religion. And he described that as taking care of widows and orphans and also keeping yourself spotless or blameless uh, from the world where you're not contaminated and you don't look the same as everyone else because you are a Christian. But typically when we use this word like with a negative connotation, we're talking about something that describes an adherence to a set of rules that is devoid of a relationship with God and a heartfelt devotion toward his word with his original intention in mind. And why would that be the case? Well, I would say it to you this way. I think that human beings are really good at building systems and structures that go beyond what God has said. I think for us, I think we tend to look into what we deem as the detail and seek to maybe not in our conscience state, like I'm trying to improve God's word, but it's like we're trying to make something that's doable. We're trying to make something that's attainable. And so we build this scaffolding of religion to sort of implement a way of life that feels like I can do this. And this is what this actually means. 
We're very good at building these types of things, but the problem is we tend to, and history shows this to be the case, build a toxic religious environment, and that is what we see in this passage. When I say toxic, I mean that which is harmful, that which is hurtful. It hurts people. And I think if I asked everyone in the room today, have you ever been hurt by a church environment, a legalistic environment, a pastor, a parent, a leader of some kind that misrepresented God and his word, went beyond the boundaries of scripture, didn't lead you toward grace and didn't lead you into freedom. If I pulled the room, there'd be a lot of hands that would go up. And so that's just simply evidence and proof that we can do this, not just the Pharisees. Jesus confronted the Pharisees for this toxic religious stuff, and I believe that he still confronts it in his love today. Why? Because Jesus has something better, and that's the reality, and we want whatever Jesus is giving. Isn't that what you want today? I want whatever Jesus said. I want whatever Jesus is giving, and we have to learn to discard the other things that we pick up along the way, and it's with that in mind, I want to use this idea of toxic religion to sort of sum up a few points that I'm going to make through the text. And the first one is this, toxic religion adds to the Bible. Look at verse one again. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him and they had come from Jerusalem and they had seen some of his disciples that were eating their bread with impure hands. Everybody say impure. Impure. This is an important word in this text. They were eating with impure hands, that is unwashed, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat their bread with impure hands? And Jesus says this back to them. I would deem this as a confrontation. See if you agree with me. He says to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Well, that's got to be a healthy Monday to get this word from Jesus. As it is written, and then he quotes from, I think it's Isaiah 29. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far, far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines as doctrines, the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. Verse 1, it says, the Pharisees and the scribes, they came from Jerusalem. The Pharisees that we've found that are in confrontation with Jesus so far, Mark 2 and Mark 3, we've talked about them. You might remember where I said, uh, this was the first message of the year. You don't remember this, but I certainly do because it was a sermon entitled, Evaluating the Heart of a Pharisee. And I was trying to find a way to encourage you through that text. And the only thing I could say was, don't be like them. That was really the only applicational point from that message because there was so much toxicity and how they were confronting the Son of God. And we were trying to look at the reality of that. And so these are the Pharisees that we were introduced to, but they were all local. Remember, the Pharisees are the rulers of the synagogue. They're teachers of the law. It is their responsibility to evaluate those that are teaching. It is their responsibility to see if this new teacher or this new teaching is according to the word. But Mark tells us that the Pharisees have gone far past what would be their obligational, um, what they're supposed to be doing. And now they're jealous. The text says that they're jealous in Mark uh, chapter three. And it even says that Jesus is angry at them because 
of their lack of compassion. They know the word, but they're not actually living out the word. So it says that Jesus was angry because of how they treated people. But these Pharisees and scribes, they come from Jerusalem. So they're the scholars and they're the leaders of the big city. And this is important because um, the word has spread about Jesus. The Pharisees do not agree with several things, including Jesus's words. They say that he's a blasphemer, that he's not somebody that's aligned with God. And so they're resisting him as the Messiah. They're resisting him as a man of God, a teacher of God. They don't agree with his choice of company, who he's eating dinner with, who he chose as his disciples. They don't agree with his discipleship methods. Clearly in this passage, they're questioning him. Why don't your disciples do this? And they've asked him this three times already in the book of Mark. Why don't your disciples do this? The presupposition, they ought to, they must, they should, they ought to be like us and they're not, which means that it's wrong. They don't agree with his practice on the Sabbath. They believe that he's a Sabbath breaker. Jesus is a lawbreaker to these people. He does not follow the word of God. And in this passage, we deal with something familiar and that is this. What we see in the Pharisees and what Jesus confronted was they were equating man's tradition with God's law. They were, they were equating what they believed, the tradition of the elders, was equal to the Bible. Everybody say toxic. That is toxic. Whenever you think your path, your way, your thoughts, your precepts, your principles are equal to the Bible, whether that's in direct or indirect reference, that is toxic and it leads to a system that ultimately hurts people and it is what we're evaluating here. Now the Pharisees, what they're specifically looking at, the scenario looks like this. Jesus goes into the home of a Pharisee. It doesn't say that in Mark, but we read it in Luke's version of this account and he sits down to eat with them. And instead of going through the, this ritual, according to the tradition of the elders, he doesn't or they don't wash their hands. They specifically reference the disciples here. So the disciples don't wash their hands. They just dive in and, and they start eating. Now, some of you really don't like that, okay? I understand washing of hands is good hygiene, but that's not what they're talking about right now because they use the word impure. Why do your disciples eat with impure hands? They don't just mean unwashed. The word impure, mean, impure here uh, means that they're not pure. They're not presenting themselves to God. They're not right with God. They're eating food in a way that is not thankful, that is not righteous, that is not pure. They had developed this custom. There is no Old Testament law that says you need to wash your hands before you eat a meal. They took that from other places. For example, the priests were required to wash before offering sacrifices. That's Exodus 30. A leper who had been healed was required to bathe as a part of a cleansing ritual. That's Leviticus 14. Any person who had touched anything considered unclean under the old covenant, they had to take a bath, Leviticus 17 and other passages. And also everyone knew this, that worshipers had to wash their bodies before entering the temple to give their offering, which was a temple shekel and a sacrifice. They had to visit the mikvah and then they could present themselves to the Lord. This is something that was prescribed in the Old Covenant. But what is not prescribed in the Old Covenant is this Jewish traditional invention that you need to wash your hands before you eat a meal. This is something that they, that they, that they believed that they had 
taught everyone else. And we do see this in what's called the oral law. You guys might remember this. Some of you know this because you're a student of the Bible. But there is a book that was written somewhere around the 200s, but it was actually only oral at that time. In other words, elders, uh, Pharisees, and, and scribes would teach the people the oral law. There were all these customs, all these beliefs, and all these practices that were in addition to the Bible. And there were 600 of them. There were so many. I've talked to you about how on the Sabbath, there were 39 categories of work that you could not uh, give yourself to when it was the Sabbath. Not just 39 types of work, but categories of work. And that's why everybody was kind of confused on what they could or could not do on the Sabbath. Well, in the Mishnah, in the oral law, there's a whole section as to what you need to wash. And that includes your hands and pots and when you come back from the marketplace because you might've been around a Gentile. And there's just a ton of stuff that they adhered to like that. They were adding to the Bible. And this is the statement that I wanna make today is that adding our traditions or even our preferred principles to the Bible, it causes great harm. It makes us judgmental. It causes great division. It breeds legalism and it promotes pride. And the last thing that I think it does, there are other things, but it promotes arrogance before God. It promotes pride in front of people, like I'm better than you because of the way I live my life, the principles that I adhere to. It may not be in the word of God, but, but I, I live a more pure life than you do. That's, that's pride. But there's an arrogance that we can have before God. And that is, is that when we improve, supposedly on the Bible, we're kind of saying that like we can do it better and we can help people understand it more clearly. That's sort of an arrogance that underlies this entire conversation. And I wanted to illustrate this by showing you a delightful picture today. And so if you guys could throw that picture up. Yes, this is a delightful, happy Mother's Day. Amen. This is where all of you want to be right now. Ben, stop talking about toxic religion. I just want to go here to this place and to be here with this people. Notice there are no people. That's why you want to be there. It's a sacred space. It's my special place, my secret place. That's for you. That's for me. This painting is by a guy named Thomas Kincaid. Um, so he's well-known in Christian circles. This painting is my favorite of what he does. It's not, he's not my flavor, okay? When it comes to art, this is not my particular flavor, but this is called Streams of Living Water, and I like this. I feel like this is a place that I've never been to before, will never be until heaven. I, I like it. It's, it's awesome. So again, this might not be your flavor, but can we all agree on something when we look at this? That's pretty fantastic. I mean, as, from an artist standpoint, like somebody sat there and however many hours, I don't want to know he took three hours, but <laughs> that would make me feel really depressed. But he took hours and he he sat there and he conceived this in his mind and he produced this. He painted this. It's beautiful. I am not an artist. I'm, I live in the land of stick figure. Okay? Raise your hand if you're like me. God bless you, wonderful people. God brought us together for a reason. <laughs> when people say color in between the lines, we're like, no problem. Not many lines there. It's kind of like, you're done. Any bad joke. Um, I'm not an artist, but what would you think if I told you, you know, this is, this is nice, I think, but I kind of think I could, I could add to it a little bit and make it a little bit nicer, you know? I mean, God bless Thomas Kincaid or whatever his name is, but hey, you know, I, I can't even see the cross. Can you even see the cross? It's supposed to be a church, you know? So I'm gonna paint like a big LED cross, like right there, just bam, like three of them, just, just right there, plant those things there. And, and there's no cars. How do people get to church? This doesn't even make sense to me. So I want a couple cars, maybe a Tesla, something like that. Um, <laughs> 
a couple people fishing, right? That's what I would do. If I went to church and we were on a stream, the next thing we would do is we'd go outside and fish right after church. And that's what we'd be eating and connect after service. This doesn't make sense at all. So I'd probably paint some people fishing and some kids playing and a lot of animals. There's no animals. You know, they got to have some kind of animals. I I don't know. Somebody did this. I did not tell them to do this. This is, I promise you, I promise you. (laughs) Somebody listened to me last night and they thought they were going to be funny. Good job, guys. I like that. And I think it needs to be pink because it's Mother's Day, you know, so why not, you know? Amen. And uh, let me ask you a question. Does that look better? (laughs) I think they further illustrated my point. See, the more that you start to add, just take this away, please. Take this away. (laughs) The more that you start to add to the painting, it is no longer what it originally was supposed to be. So even if you say, like, I could do better, that, that's the arrogance. The arrogance is, is I'm, not, I'm not an artist, and I can look at what somebody else did, and I can say, you know, I can improve on that. I can make that better. Just add some of this and add some of that. And it's just, it's, in, in its original form, it's not what it should be. We need more. We need to add more. And this is what it's like to add to the Bible. In fact, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were adding to the Bible and they may not have said it with their words, but it's certainly the the direct result. It's the consequence of adding to the scripture. It's an arrogance. We can improve on this. We got to make this better. The scripture is not enough. The, the, The language isn't clear enough. So we've got to say some extra things. Got to put a big old LED cross or pink Tesla or whatever. I was thinking about things, um, not really in our church, but I, m- part of my history is that I traveled from church to church, spoke at a lot of conferences, and, and I've been to a ton of churches, more than most people, uh, because, of what I, because of what I used to do. And I just thought about how many things divide us that are, are not said in the Word of God. How many things are in the Bible that we, um, that we take beyond what Scripture actually says and commands? And it's sad because we end up in the opposite place of where we actually want to be. And I'm just going to bring up a couple of them. So, you know, don't shoot the messenger, all right? There's no amen after there. You got to help me out. (laughs) I I won't shoot you. You know, just, (laughs) I feel like I'm going to get shot right now, all right? (laughs) Well, the first one is this, alcohol. People divide over this issue. Now, here's the reality. Alcohol is very dangerous. That is for sure. All of the, the deaths per year, uh, the drunk driving, alcoholism, drunkenness, clearly alcohol is a very serious issue. That I am not saying is uh, that I differ with at all. But the Bible is very clear on its command. In Ephesians 5, seven passages in Proverbs, be not drunk. That's what it says. Do not be drunk. But everywhere else that the Bible brings up alcohol, it basically speaks about moderation, regulation, and monitoring. So in other words, if you drink a glass of beer or a glass of wine and you're not drunk, the Bible has nothing to say about that, except the wisdom principles that we would find. You don't want to cause someone to stumble. If you know somebody's an alcoholic, you don't drink in front of them. And so that's obviously a wisdom principle from Scripture that we derive from the Bible. Yes, we want to live that out. 
Um, I think it's really important if we too have struggles. We don't want to go back to things that cause us to struggle. That's wisdom principles. But there are a lot of churches, and we have a lot of history in the church, of making commands from this specific thing where the Bible does not have one. And I have heard it, and I have seen it. I, I have watched um, where people will preach it. And they do believe this, that if a Christian drinks a beer, that they're not as good of a Christian as someone else. That exists, and that may, maybe doesn't exist in our church, but it certainly exists across the body of Christ. And I would even say, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? Now, this is a little provocative, and you can, on your way home, tell your kids the other beliefs that you have as a family value system, all right? <laughs> but I think, I'm, I think I'm with Scripture here. Jesus changed water into did Jesus drink any wine? Some of you did not answer the question. <laughs> and there's a reason you can't answer the question. You don't want to. You, you want to know why I think some of this starts, what, what started with the fair? I started thinking about this last night because I was like, I'm pretty sure people are getting me the wrong way here today. All right. Yeah. Oh, got a, got a phone call. Got to leave, Pastor Ben. All right. See ya. <laughs> got to go. Got to go. Yep, right in the heat of the moment, no problem. Um, the dangers of alcohol, right? The dangers of things are very real. What happens is we originally start in wanting to protect people. And so our, our version of protection is removing the option. The problem, though, is that we don't, we're not necessarily trying to do this, but we tend to add to Scripture. And even if we don't say, the Bible says do not drink, we start to imply that. What happens is a specific type of pressure starts to get released and it becomes a burden. Now, if it's just one issue, it probably isn't going to be that big of a deal. But friends, I'm telling you, it's more than one issue. And churches are guilty of this all the time. And I would actually go as far... Now, I don't drink. You want to know. I'm just going to tell you. Everybody wants to know what their pastor does so they can feel comfortable. Um, I don't drink because I come from a world of alcoholism. Not me personally, but I come from that world. And I just never want to guess when I'm around someone. Um, and people recognize me all the time everywhere I go. So I just don't think I could ever do it and feel comfortable that I was around people where it wouldn't cause them to stumble. So I live by wisdom, but that's not a command. I'm not living by a command. I'm living by wisdom because I'm giving my freedom away to others. That's what I've chosen to do. But I've got lots of friends. Many of them are pastors, and they choose to drink a glass of wine or a beer. They just do it in wisdom. That's great. I give people a lot of wisdom principles. I say, if you're going to drink a glass of wine or a beer, don't take a picture of it and post it on Instagram. You know? I mean, it's like Oktoberfest. Yeah. You know, it's like... what. Because we live in a culture of excess, and so people are going to automatically think, you know, just drink till your heart's content, and then they cross over the line. But I think we start, what we do is we start in a place that is good. We want to protect people, but we end in a place where we want to control them. That's, that's what ends up in toxic religion. You don't have to say amen, just think about it. How about tattoos? I get people asking me this all the time. They say, what do you think about tattoos? And I say, who cares what I think? What does the Bible say? And Leviticus 19.28 is where we go. If you've been part of an old school environment, uh, you've heard this verse before, but this is what it says. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead or make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I, I am the Lord. And this was an admonition, an exhortation to a people that are going into um, the promised land where they're going to encounter the Canaanites. Now, the Canaanites had a practice, and that was when someone died or was dying, they would cut themselves and it was a form of worship to their deities, to their gods. That's, that's what they did, all right? 
And so they also would tattoo themselves just like they cut themselves. Part of the cutting was tattoo. You have to cut yourself to tattoo yourself in, ancient, uh, in an ancient context. That's how they, they didn't have like tattoo guns, like, you know, otherwise they would have been tattooed up like our generation. But now I'm not, I'm not going, there was a, a pastor in, in where we uh, moved from where he actually got a tattoo on the stage in front of his people. I thought, wow, that's crazy. Um, and so I'm not doing that today, but, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just be honest with you. I don't like tattoos on my own body, but if you get a tattoo, I'm not going to be your umpire. I don't, I actually don't even care. Your parents care though, if you're young. <laughs> I have done everything that I possibly can to control all of my little humans <laughs> and to compel them as strongly as possible that they will regret every ink decision that they make on their person, okay? And one of my unnamed sons got, more tat- got enough tattoos for all of us. So I thought, well, game over. Can we stop yet? I mean, it's just, you know, he went into the military and after work, that's what they got, the boys did. They just went and got tattoos and he came back and it was a whole new man. I was like, wow, if you're watching, sorry. So I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I'm not gonna be getting one or anything, but like, I just don't, like, I'm not gonna, does the, what does the Bible say? Leviticus 19.28, that's, that's not what it says. So people ask me what I think all the time. I'm like, well, there's no Bible verse against it. But what I would tell you is don't put a skull, you know. I mean, I got Santa Claus on my back right now, but that's, you know, don't. We could bring up Christmas if you want. I, I try to help people live in wisdom without them feeling this pressure of me trying to control them. Okay, because that's what has hurt people. What about our, uh, what we wear? I'm, I'm going overtime. I knew I wouldn't get to all my principles today. What about what we wear? In our church, this is the way that, that we believe. It's, uh, and it's probably Seattle culture is where it's like, um, I, just per- I just want you to wear clothes. Okay? That's it. Gar- this is not the Garden of Eden. Okay, people? Adam and Eve are thoroughly covered up. That's it. That's what I require. Okay? You know, no clothes, no service. Amen. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is shutting it down right there. So, but come how you want, you know, be comfortable, man. I don't care. Like if, but I do think when I teach younger people, is it good to present yourself a certain way? Of course it is. Yes. And in, in families, we teach that to our kids. So teach to your kids a family value system. And then of course, they're going to do what they will with that. But my point is, is that it shouldn't be part of our religious environment where you have to feel like you got to dress up to be here. No, I just want you to be here. I'm glad that you're here. I'm thankful that you come. You know, I'm not, we're not, I'm not going to put some undue pressure on you that's not scripture. And then we could go to worship services. We could talk about liturgy. We could talk about songs. We could talk about style, preference. The real question is, what does the Bible say? Often the Bible gives us what to do, but not how to do it. But when we make the how, the command, we get in trouble. And honestly, what it does is it's like, this is the way to do it. And that is not a good way. Subtly, that becomes a command of Scripture, and we exchange the command for a tradition. And when we do that, we build ourselves in a type of pride that is toxic and unhealthy. And we just want to learn how to discard those things so that we can reach the lost and disciple the found. And that is the goal. 
And I would just remind us of that today because probably you're not in this space where you're struggling with any of this. But we want to continue to raise up a generation where they love God and they serve Him. And it's all about what the Word says. I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, which means that sometimes it makes me blessed and comfortable and sometimes it makes me profoundly uncomfortable. Like the question, did Jesus drink wine? That makes me uncomfortable. Because I come from somewhere where we wanted to get away from as much of that life as possible. Like, I don't even want to wear the clothes of what I used to look like because I come out of a certain kind of life. So for me, I'm appalled by it. I'm repulsed by it. But I've got to be careful because some people don't come from where I come from. And if I preach in a certain way that goes beyond the boundaries of Scripture, I'm projecting onto them things that are not even in their mindset, not even part of their thinking, because they don't come from where I do. So if I preach the Bible, I'm safe. That's what we have to do. We have to teach the Word of God because we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And if we stay there, it's, it's going to bless our kids, our families, our environment, and our churches. Now, I do want to make one warning because I think any indictment in this sermon could be, well, Ben, what about? And I know that could be. There are times where we also have to recognize that it's not just the legalists, but it's the licentiousness, right? I mean, people can go the other way too. And I would say that um, the religious and the rebellious always have something in common. They always go their own way instead of God's way. The rebellious is going to be like this. They're going to say, well, the Jesus, I'm just going to give you an example, and this is the first one that comes to my mind, so it is what it is. But Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. So it's probably not something that he is concerned about, okay? That's extremely problematic. By the way, number one, never do your theology by that, okay? Because there's a lot of things Jesus didn't talk about. But when you say that, what we're doing is dismissing the fact that Jesus was a first century rabbi. He believed the old covenant, number one. He believed a biblical sexual ethic. And to suggest that he didn't is very, it's, it's not even strange. It's so far from the truth, number one. Number two, If we believe in the authority of the Bible, that the Holy Spirit inspired all of Scripture, and we have a Trinitarian theology, we believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. When we say Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality, we're saying that Jesus was in disagreement with the Father and the Son. It's kind of a weird theology. Like, it's like, well, uh, Jesus came and improved on things. You know, he was a little bit more gentle and a little bit more kind. I, he called these guys hypocrites. I don't know. He dealt with sin. He didn't just deal with Pharisees and religious people. He also dealt with people that were rebellious. And he said, if you cause people to sin, it would be better for you that a millstone was tied around your neck and was thrown into the sea. I don't know if that's the same Jesus some people preach. So you have the rebellious and you also have the religious. But you know what? Jesus speaks to all of them, doesn't he? How do you stay in the right place? You just stay with the sufficiency of Scripture. That's how we stay away from toxic religion. The second point, very quickly I want to bring up, is toxic religion corrupts the follower. Jesus makes this point here in Mark 7, 9 through 13. He says to them, you hypocrites, you're actors. You're playing a role without sincerity. You're fakes, you're imposters. And then he goes into saying this, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God to honor your traditions. And he's citing the fifth commandment as an example, which is to honor your father and your mother. 
And he basically says this, this is what you're doing to the Pharisees. What you're doing is that you have the means to help your parents. Because honor does not just mean like you say nice things to your mom and dad. Honor means that you actually are prepared to physically provide for them as well. You're, you're there to help them when they need help. You're there to bless them when they need something from you. And so if you have the means financially, your possessions and in your pocketbook, you have the ability to do that. What some of them were doing is they were claiming over their possessions and their finances Corbin. And that's a pledge to God. I am designating everything I have. It belongs to God. And in their culture, when you did that, what it meant was you were saying, when I die, all of this is going to go to the temple and it's not going to go to my family. That's the first thing. But the second thing was, as long as it was dedicated as Corbin, you could use it now however you saw fit. And so they were making a tradition, a rule, as it were, that would equal some type of selfish gain for themselves. And Jesus is calling them out on that. He's saying, you're honoring your tradition, but you're, uh, you're removing the command of God. The Bible is very clear on this. Look at how you're committing a hypocrisy. And this is just an incredible thing. And what my point is, is that toxic religion will corrupt the, the actual follower of it. And they'll start to adhere to these principles and these rules that think, them, think they're pure before God, I'm right before God, I'm walking with God, when in reality, you're dismissing what the actual Bible teaches about. In Matthew's version of this, he says to the Pharisees, yeah, you tithe, yeah, you give, yeah, you make sacrifices, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, which is love and mercy. See, you neglect the things that have to do with who God is and how he is. And you're, you're basically supposing that you're living in a righteous way, but you're not. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell them. Now, they were infuriated by this, but the point is, is that it corrupts the follower. It causes us to be blind when we adhere to these extra biblical principles. And the, and the final thing is toxic religion hinders the true seeker. I'll read this to you very quickly. After he called the crowd to him again, he began to say, listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. If anyone hears, has ears to hear, let him hear. The crowd tried to adhere to the Pharisees' teaching and way of life, but they failed. And what it ended up doing is hindering them in coming to God. And there was a shift that when the Pharisees and the crowds left, the disciples were confused by what Jesus said because they were trying to follow. They're like, these, are the repre- these people are the representation of not only what the law says, but how to live it out. So what are you saying? You're saying that these guys were terrible at living this out. So how do we even have a chance? And G- Jesus reiterates the principle that evil is stored up in the heart. He's saying you can eat whatever food you want. It's just going to be eliminated. It's not what's on the outside where evil is, is sort of, it goes into your heart. It's that you have a corrupted heart. J- Jesus is setting them up for what would later come, and we know it as the gospel of Jesus Christ, why he lived a sinless life, why he died for our sin in our place, why he rose from the dead and told people that if you believe in me, because I lived a righteous life, because I died in your place, that I will absorb your sins and I have taken them on myself. And the only way that you can become pure, the only way, is by receiving my righteousness. It's not something that you can do. 
It's not something that you have in yourself. You have unrighteousness. You have impurity. He's trying to set the disciples up for this very thing. And then he gives them an incredible list, which really go down through the Ten Commandments in a way. Here's all these things like pride and slander and envy and deeds of coveting and foolishness and adultery and sexual immorality. And at some point, people just had to be honest, like, yeah, I've done one or more of those things. And the disciples were kind of like listening to this and they were thinking like, what is happening right now? I don't feel encouraged. Like, I feel like I don't measure up. I can't live up. And if the Pharisees can't do it, I certainly can't do it. And you remember what Jesus said? He made this statement that I think it's misunderstood. But his disciples heard him say it. He said, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I don't think that in that moment they heard him the right way. They probably thought, what? <laughs> what chance do I have? If, the righteous, if I can't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, what chance do I have? The only chance that anyone has to being pure before God is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We know that. But you know what? We need to be reminded of that too. And I, I would say we need to be reminded of that all the, all the time. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is sick. We're born with a, a heart sickness that only Jesus can cure. This is a major difference in the Christian's worldview. We know that people are not basically good, but that evil is bound up within our hearts. Every last one of us, evil is bound up in our hearts. There's only one force in this world that can drive it far from us, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is essentially like building them up to this place with the bad news. There is bad news. The bad news is you cannot be pure in and of yourself. All of our human efforts build scaffoldings of religion that eventually will fall. Now, this isn't to say that we don't follow God. This isn't to say that we don't adhere to principles. I'm just talking about generally here. We build these scaffoldings that eventually fall, and Jesus is helping them understand that your human efforts are not going to get you there. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you do, your human efforts cannot get you there. But aren't you thankful that Jesus can? That's what he can do. That's what he does. That's what makes us saved. That's how we get born again is we enter in through the person of Christ, the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all righteousness, unrighteousness. I was thinking today as we close, um, when I look at this, I, I don't know how to fit this into Mother's Day. I just want to close on a lighter note. Um, I think a lot of people get hurt by toxic religion that has nothing to do with what Jesus came to impart to a people that love him. The direct contrast in this passage to me is there's this group of people that are trying to please God and, uh, and they're not able to. They're trying to follow the commandments. They're even making their own fences and doing everything that they can and they simply can't do it. And then there's the disciples who are following Jesus and every time they're confused and every time something happens, they look to him and they say, uh, could you explain this to us? And although it makes them honestly sometimes look kind of dull, it's really the life of a Christian, isn't it? Because they're under his lordship and under his authority and they keep looking to him and they keep saying, what does this mean? What did you mean by that? See, that's a beauty of dependence. That's a beauty of relationship. 
where I don't understand this and I don't know what this is supposed to look like and clearly they're not doing it right, so how do I do this? And the picture to me is Jesus and his disciples and how they're walking closely. That's what Christianity is. It's leaning into and walking closely with Jesus in a way where we're not depending on our own version and interpretation, even of what he's saying. We're constantly asking, like, what did you mean by that? What does that look like? How do I follow that? What are you saying when you, when you say that? We're constantly coming to Christ. That's the picture to me. Dependence on Jesus, the one that knows, the one that has, the one that is. We don't have to look to ourselves, and that to me is the point. But I've, had a, I've got a lot of stories. I didn't bring them up today about times where I was wounded by toxic religion, and I bet you we have a, a lot in this room. But I wanted to just tell you that one of the things we need to pray for as we close is that God would heal us from those things that have wounded us from a, a, a Christian environment. People have woefully misrepresented Jesus. And I would dare to say I have at times, absolutely. Absolutely as a parent, as a pastor. I desire that to not be the case, but I bet you if we're all honest, it's not just that people have done that to us, it's that we've done it too. Is that fair? It's that we've done it too. Because sin can be right there, closer than we want it to be, and cause us to do things and say things we never wanted. Jesus can bring healing to that, and he can start us in a fresh place where the sufficiency of Scripture, the power of his Spirit, the life of Christ is literally our way forward. It's that we're focused on, we're fixed on, we're grounded on all that he is and all that he brings. And so I want to pray, if you would stand, I want to pray for healing today. Pray that God brings beauty out of places of ash. And if you would bow your head just for a moment and close, close your eyes slightly. I'm not trying to be secretive. I just want to honor the presence of God. And I just want to pray over us today. And, and as I pray, if you feel in your heart that like, there's even a chance that you're living in a reaction to an environment that you were wounded by, hurt by, that's been difficult for you, and maybe you project that on future environments. Maybe it's caused you to not feel connected, not feel like you're part of this family, or maybe apprehensive to get involved when God is convicting you and prodding you forward. He's saying, I want you to get involved, and you hear it, and you know it's right, but you just can't. Like, there's something holding you back. Maybe you were part of a church blow-up or there was some deception that was around your previous experience. It happens all the time. Or maybe your parent didn't represent Christ rightly and you're just put off. God wants to touch that place. Might not be uh, many of us, but there might be some today where you know, you've just been overwhelmed, you've been touched and hurt by that. I want to pray that God would heal that place and set us in a, in a new way on a new path. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Nobody's looking but me. Lord, I need you to heal that today. Yeah, just have the courage to raise your hand today. I need God to heal that in me. Yeah, thank you for that courage. What are we asking him for? We're asking him to heal that place. Is there any more? I see a number of, there's a number of hands that have come up. Yep. Thank you, Lord. So Father, we pray in the name of Christ that you would come today and bring healing. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, this is an example to us of how not to do it. But it's also a mirror to us in that some, sometimes we do. And so we pray that you would give us the right and the righteous path. Help us to be so grounded and focused on your word, not that we're perfect, but that we're, uh, we're students of, of your pathway. And I pray that, Lord, we would stop projecting from our past experiences onto our current reality. 
And I ask you for the grace to stop. I ask you for the grace, Lord, to deliver us from those places and bring healing into our lives. Father, I carry some of those things. I've been around and I know it. And I pray for anybody in here that would be saying, today I need healing from the Lord from any toxic religious environment that has somehow wounded me. Father, I pray you would do that today. We thank you that you're in this place and you're here to heal. And we receive your healing and all that you want to do. We thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Everyone said... Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.